Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network in New York City History, a podcast presented to you by the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. My name is Hongding Gao, a doctoral candidate at Columbia University's History Department. Today on our podcast, we have Dr. Ariola Rotrammel, an assistant professor of gender, sexuality, and intersectionality studies at Connecticut College. Rotrammel teaches courses on social movements, gender and women's history, ethnic studies, and queer and sexuality studies. We will be speaking about Rotrammel's new book, Pushing Back Women of Color-Led Grassroots Activism in New York City published in 2020 by the University of Georgia Press. The book focuses on case studies of two New York-based organizations, CAF, Organizing Asian Communities, and Mothers on the Move, two small women-led community organizations that have participated in a number of progressive coalitions on issues including housing rights, workers' rights, and environmental justice at the local, national, and global levels. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ari. So I'm wondering if we could start by having you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Um, So um, I am someone who I was originally born in Raleigh, North Carolina, but when I was five, we moved to Illinois Um, and I grew up in the suburbs until I went to high school and we moved to um, Chicago proper. Um, So I grew up there and um, I did my first year of college at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and then I transferred to the University of Illinois at Chicago. So that's where I did my undergrad. And that Mm -hmm. was a time where I learned a lot more about activism and participated in some um, organizing on campus and in the broader Chicago community. Um, And then I applied for grad school and I went to um, Rutgers University for a PhD, excuse me. Uh, Rutgers University for a PhD in women's and gender studies. Yeah. And um, just curious, why did you decide to pursue a PhD in women's and gender studies? And um, yeah, if we could start from there. So when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I struggled a lot with my studies. Um, When I was at U of I, um, I took a really great first class um, about women in politics, my first semester. Um, and I was very excited about that. Um, but then, you know, I found whenever I'd go into the more like introductory level courses that you had to do to start um, a major, um, the way that they were thinking and talking about the world didn't quite work for me. Um, so I kept on bouncing around fields. Um, and at the same time, I had come out um, and I was definitely, you know, dealing with issues of, of homophobia and other things. So, you know, those questions were really present in my mind too. Um, so when I was at the University of Illinois at Chicago, I kept on going back to those gender studies courses and we had a program, but we didn't have a major. Um, so with the support of the faculty, I was able to do my own major. And I was really interested in how gender and sexuality and race kind of came together in people's lives. Um, And during that time, I realized there wasn't actually a lot of work on the questions I had, right? Um, I took a sociology class on gender, and I wanted to write a paper about sort of 
lesbian identity formation, and there was almost nothing on that from sociology. Um, and I remember my teacher was really frustrated because I actually had to do this very interdisciplinary um, research approach when she wanted people to do a much more formal sociological um, approach to their their papers. Um, so, you know, I kept on thinking about that, and my professors were really encouraging. And so I figured, you know, I will apply to grad school, and if I don't get in, I'll work, and that's okay. Um, but I thought, you know, I really appreciated what my teachers had done for me. I wanted to be a teacher. Um, and I thought that there was a lot of work to be done on research, you know, about all sorts of questions that hadn't really been answered. And that really mattered to people like me and to people, you know, I really cared about. Um, so that's kind of what drove me to, to apply for the program and to stick with it. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of us in PhD programs, um, had inspiring role models in undergrad, and that's really how um, we decided to really pursue the path, but also pursue a project that really speaks to our um, identity and the questions that um, really affect us. Um, yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can pivot a little bit to the book itself. Sure. And um, if you could uh, briefly tell us a little bit about how you came to the project and specifically um, you talk a, a little bit about this in the introduction, how you came across these two um, groups, CAF and Mothers on the Move, if you could recount that for us. Yeah, so, um, you know, I arrived in New Jersey um, and, you know, I, I went to Rutgers. So I was in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, which is sort of in the middle of the state, um, but it's very close to a train. And, you know, I, I first moved from Chicago and I missed the city. Um, and I, I learned about um, the group Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Um, so I started going to their meetings, and I would take the train in. Um, and they were, at the time, they were based in Midtown Manhattan. So it was, you know, like a walk from Penn Station. So it was super easy. Um, and, you know, a lot of the work they were doing at the time had to do with domestic workers and had to do with immigration questions. And this was... Um, during the Bush administration, there had been conversations about trying to, you know, pass some legislation to address sort of all the, the challenges around immigration, but it was also still, you know, this was during the, the Iraq-Afghanistan war and, you know, lots of um, members of our community, you know, Muslim Americans were also um, dealing with issues around immigration. So, um so I, I really appreciate the work Jack, Jay Fredge was doing. Um, and they were also just part of this really dynamic um, sort of coalition of, you know, progressive or leftist groups across the city. And one issue that they had started working on um, was transgender rights. And um, that year, I think, was the first year of the Trans um, Day of Action which has now become an annual thing. And they needed some support to um, provide security. So um, CAV was actually the group that was sort of leading that facilitation on how do you safely help people um, participate in a march. Um, and, you know, I was like, oh, that, you know, that's something I would like to do. Um, and so, you know, I got to go to that, you know, learn how to help block traffic and make sure people are safe. 
Um, and I was just really impressed by CAV folks, right? I'd see them at other kinds of rallies and there was this like really strong presence. Um, and I loved with them that I saw that they were this group that, you know, was really focused on um, Asian issues and, and sort of had that strong focus, but, you know, they were showing up for trans folks, right? And that wasn't a question or a problem. So that was super intriguing to me. Um, and Mothers on the Move, um, on the other hand, was this group that I heard about from my friend, Edgar um, Rivera Colon, who was in the anthropology department at Rutgers. And he was this guy that I would run into on the train sometimes between um, New York and New Jersey. I had relocated to New York, um, first to Queens. And uh, yeah, he told me about the group and he was like, you would probably really find them interesting. And I was like, yeah. You know, so it's this, this group that's doing really, you know, sort of impressive work in the South Bronx that was doing cross-racial work um, where feminism was sort of um, something that came natural to folks. It wasn't something that had to be, you know, always the centerpiece of discussion, but, you know, that they believed in, you know, women and women's ability to, to take action. Yeah. Yeah. And the name was super intriguing, of course. Right. So, yeah, I'm talking to Edgar, who's a guy. Um, and he's like, yeah, I was part of Mothers on the Move. I was on their board. And I'm like that in of itself for me, particularly someone who had, you know, came into the field very much interested in queer questions and LGBT questions. I was like, that's awesome. Right. To think about, um, people who identify as men also identifying as mothers. Um, so that also definitely piqued my interest. Wow, that's really fascinating. And um, I'm definitely going to look more into both of these organizations and try to um, participate and help out as well. Um, awesome. <laughs> so I'm wondering, because you are writing about two non-for-profit organizations that are relatively small, and um, as you mentioned, um, have, you know, limited budget. And for folks who are writing about nonprofit organizations or just organizations in general and um, are thinking about the challenges of writing about their histories and gathering sources because usually they don't really have the, you know, personnel who's, you know, doing the archive mm -hmm. work and trying to keep track of their history. What was your experience like um, trying to write about them and doing the ethnographic research that you did? Um, what were some, I guess, challenges, but also um, rewarding experiences? Yeah, I mean, I think you were hit on sort of what motivated me to do this project. Um, and I guess to take a step back, um, when I applied for grad school, I, I think my proposal was I wanted to do an oral history of like lesbian and bisexual Chicanas in the United States. Um, <laughs> so obviously my project changed a lot and it changed because even as I was doing my coursework, right, there started to be more and more people who were working more in that intersection of sort of ethnic studies and LGBT studies. And I realized that that was too much of a stretch for me as a white person, right? Like it, it just didn't make sense. Um, and I was really, um, more and more really concerned about sort of the political moment we were living in and the kind of activism that I was seeing. And um, coming from Chicago, it was really exciting to see a lot of cross-racial work. Um, 
you know, for folks who aren't as familiar, right? Chicago, you know, is a fairly segregated city. I'm seeing, you know, sometimes, you know, like that you have activism now where there's more cross racial interaction. And I think that's super exciting, but I think it's really intentional work that's being done by um, a younger generation. And, you know, often when I was in Chicago, it'd be, if it was multiracial, it's because it was queer folks. Um, otherwise it often was very like pretty limited. You know, if you're in a space, it was mostly Chicanos, um, maybe not even Puerto Ricans, right? Like very um, sort of strict lines in a way that New York just doesn't function as tightly in that way. Um, so, yeah. So when I started thinking about this project, I had a roommate in Queens and she was talking to me about the group she worked with and sort of these issues around organizational memory and archives. Um, and, she, and she worked for a foundation, um, but still, right, it was a problem for them. And I thought about, you know, how important it is for us to understand what goes into the work of activism. Um, and I see that a lot with my students, right? Like, they've been raised in a society where if they've learned anything, it's that, you know, Martin Luther King was this great man and he led millions of people. And I think that's true, but they don't understand what it took to make a civil rights movement occur. They don't understand the history that, that led up to these big moments and what actually led to, you know, change. They don't know about someone like Ella Baker, right? That's just not part of the story they're being told. Um, and I see that at the college level, right? So it's not even just K through 12. So, um, so, you know, I was thinking about all those kinds of issues and actually, you know, approached a couple of other groups to do research. One, um, I realized they were actually doing a good job documenting their work and, you know, they were a group that was kind of referred to as like the flavor of the month. So they had um, a sort of white leadership that was very professionalized. They were very effective at getting grants. Um, I think even at that point they already had like an over a million dollar a year budget. Um, and they're a very big group now. Um, and I realized like that wasn't the right group for me. Right. Um, it just, I wasn't as excited about the work they were doing. And I got a sense, right? Like they know how to tell their story. They're going to preserve their memory. Um, even in a way that sort of like reminds me of, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the suffrage movement, right? Like some people wrote their own history and made sure that they would be remembered. Right. Um, and I wonder more about the people who aren't um, as, as sort of ego centered or are just part of a bigger, you know, a different kind of picture. So um, that group, you know, I sort of stepped away from. And the other group, um, unfortunately, uh, ceased to exist while I was talking to them. You know, they were an interesting um, group that was um, working with folks who had, you know, were refugees from the, the war in, you know, the Balkans in the 90s and super interesting um, they were doing like soccer matches, bringing people together. I love soccer. I was super excited about that. Um, but they were falling apart and, you know, they were really clear, like they just didn't have even the staffing to deal with someone like me. Um, so I guess, you know, one thing that I think is really important for folks to always think about, and I learned a lot more about this, um, working with people who do um, sort of community-based learning and sort of the research in that field. And I think that's something that folks in history or sociology or anthropology 
you know, we really do need to think about that, um, that scholarship. Um, they're really clear that you have to think about any exchange and sort of what kind of resources are you taking from an organization, right? And it might just be time, but time is valuable. So um, the two groups I ended up working with, you know, we've sort of, uh, you know, we negotiated how we were going to interact, but a lot of it was, you know, me hanging out um, and sort of them being like, here's a bunch of boxes. If you want to do that sort of hands-on archiving work, that's cool. Um, and I really did want to try to help organize their, you know, materials, right? Because anyone who's been in an office um, knows that there's just tons of paper everywhere and no one has time to organize it or someone leaves and they just leave their stuff and they just sort of end up with these layers of things. And, you know, sometimes when people get the urge, they might just throw it all out, right? Because they're like, we need to clean up our office, right? Like, and in our moment, I mean, there's questions that I didn't have to think about that I think are really important now, which is digital, digital materials, right? Like, I don't even, I don't have the answers for that. Um, right. But I, you know, I was hanging out, um, doing that kind of stuff. I would participate in protests, um, workshops. Uh, and I, you know, I, what I found from the ethnographic work, because that's sort of where that, you know, it sort of bled into that, right? Um, you know, it's it's complicated. I one is thing was I'm not a very like um, outgoing person. I've worked really really hard um, since grad school to try to be more outgoing. Um, I think part of it's just how I grew up. Um, but, you know, you have to really sort of put yourself out there. I ended up developing friendships with some folks. Um, and that's both a really good thing and it's a really complicated thing, right? So when people have conflicts or something, something's coming up, you know, it's, it's hard to think about, like, what is your place, right? Um, so I found that to be a really beneficial thing. I think that those relationships like changed me a lot, but I also think that it was exhausting um, and scary, right. To be honest, right. Because I think when you care about people, you know, then you're trying to write about their stories. And I think that for me, at least that meant I felt a kind of deeper responsibility. And, and at the end of the day, like folks don't actually have the time if they don't have the time for, the kinds of stuff we're talking about the organizations, they don't necessarily have the time to really like deal with your dissertation. Right. Um, so I did get some feedback from um, one person, but a lot of people were like, it's fine. Right. Like whatever. Um, and I think that's just sort of, you know, a lesson about being an academic, right. We were very self-important. Um, and it's the exception where we actually produce work that, impacts the broader world. And I think we have to be very intentional about that, but I think we sometimes shut down too fast. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, I feel like the ethnography though, what it really did for me is I would have told a very different story if I hadn't had the interactions with folks, if I hadn't seen sort of how they worked and the kind of presence they held, um, if I had just had the paper, right. Cause it just tells, incomplete stories or meeting minutes, you think something's going 
somewhere and actually didn't go there, or you don't really know how people, the how they interact with each other. So um, I found that for this project, it was really important that I, over multiple years, right, was sort of interacting and watching and seeing and listening to folks rather than just using papers um, to try to understand what they were about and what they were doing. Yeah. I think you definitely were spot on about how it takes time to build a trust with people who will then be more willing to share with you some of the kind of deeper stories that you might need, but also how as academic, um, we are oftentimes um, writing stories then would have like impact on how the organization is being seen. Mm -hmm. Um, So that also uh, means that we have to be very intentional and responsible with what we write. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's fascinating. You know, I've read uh, books and articles where they kind of put people's stuff out on the street. Right. Um, And I was very clear, right. I'm this white person from Chicago um, I didn't know where I was going to end up after grad school, right? Like, <laughs> I think we all know the market. So I was like, I might end up back at Starbucks anywhere, um, you know, maybe in Jersey City. So I was really clear, you know, I need to be thoughtful about this project. And I, you know, I wasn't always going to be part of the living in New York. Um, so I think you know, anyone who's had a job or been part of a community group or <clears throat> had friends, you know, there's drama <clears throat> and we all make mistakes, right? I think we're in a moment where there's a lot of conversation about calling in, calling out. How do you, white people take responsibility for um, their racism and some of that kind of the stuff that they're very unaware of? Um And so I think about that and, you know, when you're documenting and writing, you know, what are you putting out there? Are you going to share every little, you know, mistake that people make or problem? You know, you know, that's maybe for some kinds of research that's appropriate. Right. Um, But I was really clear that that was not my project. I was actually really trying to learn from the people at these groups about the issues they were working on and why did they approach the issues in the ways that they did. Right. Um, They weren't some kind of um, object for me to poke at and tell a story about. Right. And I think that that is very much um, part of that comes out of my training, you know, sort of thinking about feminism, but it's also, you know, as a white person, I think we've seen enough, you know, white people telling stories that, you know, one, is that your business Two, like, you're not actually interpreting things in a way that's accurate anyway, because you don't, you don't know, right? You're not part of the community, you might be think you're an expert, but actually, you're not. Um, so, you know, I was clear of like, the, the, the issue I had, or the sort of problem I was trying to ask is like, how do we make change? Right? And how do groups like this make change when everything is going against them? Right. And to me, that's what, you know, I think is exciting about groups like Mom and Cab. Um, And I think all over this country, all over the world, there are people who are being counted out, who keep on fighting and they are trying to make a better world for us. Right. Um, 
So if they don't, sometimes they have a bad day or sometimes they make a mistake. You know what? I often have those. So I don't think a book about that's very interesting. I think a book about like how they get that shit locked down is awesome. Right. That that's yeah. what's interesting. Yeah, definitely. Um, thank you so much for sharing. I think it's so important yeah. to um, think about your own position and where you're coming from and how others would perceive you, the, the people that you're writing about would perceive you. And I think, um, uh, you, the book definitely shows that you were intentional about uh, the questions that you ask and what you had hope um, to gain from the project. So I think it's a good segue for us to talk maybe a little bit about um, this framework of queer mother work um, that you introduce and what you were thinking about when you were um, trying to uh, explain to folks the power of a queer mother work approach as uh, demonstrated in the work of Cab and Month. And specifically um, in the introduction and conclusion, you talk about contemporary mm-hmm. identity-based movements that are, you know, explicitly xenophobic, transphobic, and um, racist, and how mo- queer mother work is a different approach. Maybe we could start from there. Yeah. I mean, I think to even to think back about just what we were talking about, um, when I was doing my research, sometimes when I would present, my identity would come up, right? And not that I was white usually, which seems like the obvious thing to ask questions about. Um, it would be about me as a queer person, right? And people would ask weird questions, kind of assuming that um, people like Cat and Mom might be homophobic, right? Which I want to be frank, you know, and I, I've said this before, right? Like, these were some of the most supportive, welcoming people I've ever interacted with, right? Like super nice. Um, just, it was just not an issue um, for me and, you know, really understanding. And also as a Jewish person, they were like, oh, we know Fredge, right? The, the Jewish group. We think they're awesome. And I'm like, wow, like one, you know what Jewish people are, which, you know, in other parts, of the country, right? I've definitely met people who are like, don't even understand that. Um, and they were just like really accepting, right? Um, in a way that I was kind of, you know, stunned by. Um, so, you know, I, I found that people wanted me to make this project a lot gayer because I'm gay. Um, and that was aggravating, um, partially because you know, I worked, some of the people in these groups are queer, but that was just never part of the conversation. So we're very comfortable. But when you're talking about people being um, kicked out of their homes, you're not going to start talking about someone's girlfriend, right? Or their coming out story. Um, When I was doing interviews, people were really focused on how they became conscious around racism or inequities in their communities, right? They weren't interested in talking about sort of their like sexual identity formation or how they met their partner. That was just not the topic at hand. Um, so, so I struggled with that a little bit just because there were sometimes those expectations from people who, you know, I'd be in a seminar and that's where they'd want to take it. Or they're like, Oh, why don't you talk about gay people and gentrification? And I'm like, that's not what people are talking about. They're talking about white rich people buying up their homes, right? Like that's what they're talking about. So um, 
I was kind of resistant to even thinking about this idea of queer mother work. Um, but over time, I realized, right, with a group like Mothers on the Move, um, obviously I needed to think about questions of mothering, and I was looking at Patricia Hill Collins' work, um, and I really appreciated the way she thought about mother work because it, it made sense, right? It was about not just the people who get the title of mother, but that there's all these folks, right, in a community or in a family who take care of their people. And, you know, I'll admit, right, like, personally, that's not, it's not how I grew up. I didn't get to be part of a family that was like that. I never had a strong sense of community, um, you know, and so, I, you know, that's obviously something that was very, like, attractive to me, right? This idea of, you know, wanting to be there for each other, right? Um, so, that made sense when I was thinking about both groups, right? You look at them and you're like so much time and effort, you know, so much pain, so much risk, right. is being taken on to support people. Right. And again, most of the people in these groups, it's not about them trying to make a career out of this or to be known or whatever. It's because they really do feel that passion. Um, so I was like, okay, that really makes sense. Um, but I was also thinking about a group like CAV, right, where, you know, even when I started working with them, people were like, CAV's willing to let you do a project? And I'm like, yeah, you know, like it took a while. We had to talk about it, um, which I thought was good, right? Like IRB, I had my consent forms, right? We talked about sort of what I was doing and I talked about it with both groups, right? Um, but, you know, they had this reputation as this hardcore group and I'm like, they're not there's a way to be clear that you're a group made up of Asian folks, that that is a community you are serving and to not be, you know, nasty about it. Right. It's not like they, no one was like putting me down for being white or something. Um, so, you know, that was always interesting that people assumed that. So I was really thinking about this question of identity politics Um because of them and because of my field and just that we keep on having this challenge culturally around how do we talk about oppression and the real consequences of it. And people started getting weird when you start being like, well, it's because of racism. And I just, you know, at some point you can't look at something like environmental inequities in the United States and who's getting, you know, the burden of industrialization left at their front door and not think that's about race. Right. You know, the, the like hard data shows us that. So um, I think it's really frustrating to try to address these issues and then be told as soon as you name what the actual problem is, you're being, you know, hateful or overly political, right. You're making about something. It's not, um, so, you know, I was thinking back to the Kambahi River Collective and their discussion of identity politics, right? I talk about that in the book. Um, you know, I think people have been very sophisticated about how they work with identity in a way that's not exclusionary. It's not trying to repro reproduce oppression, but it's about naming what the problem is and saying, like, if you want to get to the root of the problem, 
you have to start there, right? Um, so as I was thinking that through, I've always loved Kathy Cohen's work. Um, I teach her essay, Punks, Bull Daggers, and Welfare Queens, Mm. any chance I get, <laughs> you know, yeah, and I love her. Yeah. Yeah. I love her. Um, even as an undergrad in Chicago, I saw, you know, I'd see her around, like she was just a really nice person too. And I was like, Oh wow. Like you can be someone who's powerful as an academic and do good work. Wow. And you know, you've met her. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that was what was nice about being in a, in a space like that. So, um, and she's gone on to do great work, right? To me, she's sort of inspirational um, as someone who's built the, the Black Youth Project. And you see really cool work coming out of that group. Um, to me, that's, that's amazing. It very much is aligned with sort of like the Ella Baker, you know, supporting youth, not making yourself the center of it, right? Like, I really respect that. Um, but anyway, so yes, I love Kathy Cohen. And I was you know, thinking about how she frames identity politics and her critiques, right, of sort of that straight gay division and thinking about queerness in this way that's really broad and talks about power, right? And I think for both the groups I'm looking at, Mothers on the Move, you know, for folks living in public housing, the kinds of issues that Kathy Cohen is talking about are very much real, right? Um, you can be straight, but if you're having your privacy invaded, I don't know how much, you know, respect you're being given. If you're a teen mom, right, you are not being given the respect, the support that we assume heterosexuals get. Um, and the same things with CAV, right? You know, people were being called, um, you know, I'm not going to use, the, they were being called prostitutes, right? I'm not going to use the sanitized word. Um, because people wanted to get them out of their apartments, and on the Lower East Side, right? Like you don't get to have the same privileges. So um, as I was starting to think about those two things together, mother work and, and sort of this like political sense of queerness that is very much about thinking about identity, but it's very much about power and identity. Um, that just really made sense to me. So um, yeah, I wrote a book chapter that was thinking through some of the harder stuff that had come out in interviews with folks where, you know, they were sharing stories of domestic violence and sexual assault. And, you know, that's, I, I mean, to go back to my point before, right. It's interesting. People weren't talking about their romantic lives, but they were very much interested in helping explain their stories by talking about trauma. Um, and I'll be honest, right. Like I wasn't expecting that um, when I did those interviews. Um, but I felt like there had to be a way to honor that without sort of doing what I do in the book, which is sort of naming people and being clear about sort of their roles, but to sort of say like, these are some themes. Um, so when I was trying to think about that, that's when I really like owned this, this idea of queer mother work um, for that book chapter. And so when I was writing my book, um, you know, my, my editor, Lynn Itagaki was like, you know, that concept makes sense and you should really like go for it. And, you know, I was, I was definitely hesitant. Um, I'm not a parent. Uh, I've always been waiting for like someone to come at me and be like, you're not a mom, you know, how can you talk about moms? Um, <laughs> and obviously, right. I'm an anxious person, but um, 
I I think the point that I'm trying to make, I hope that's been clear to folks, you know, and when I present it at conferences, no one's given me a hard time about it. But, I, you know, I think it's actually about respecting the work that moms do and people who support and believe, right, in their community and their future. Um, yeah, and in some ways, right, I think this is very much, right, when we think about reproductive justice as a big framework, I think this is part of that, right? And a moment like now where we are being a lot more direct about Black Lives Matter, I think we see why that's necessary, right? That we're talking about communities where people don't get to assume a future for their kids. And, you know, I was talking to a friend last week and her kid was driving cross country and he's a man of color. And, you know, she had to worry the whole time about his safety in a way that a white person just wouldn't have to. And I think like that is the world we're living in. Right. So if we don't name that, I don't know where, where we're supposed to go. I think queer mother work, um, when I read it, it was a really powerful concept for me. And I mean, it took me a while to really have the concept sink in. And I think I might even start using that in my own work um, on, you know, Chinese American health activism in New York's Chinatown and think about how, you know, even though maybe the group itself really started as a result of direct kind of focus on racism and kind of just the identity of being Chinese American, um, the issue then, then kind of allowed them to build coalitions with other groups across ethnic boundaries. And I think you illustrate that really well um, and how it's a sort of a reflective process as well and how the groups uh, really evolved and uh go from just a single issue to a multi-issue organization. Um, and that's kind of the really the power there, right? Um, I don't know if you want to maybe just address that a little bit specifically for Kev and Mom. Sure, yeah. And I think it's, I mean, that's what I hope, you know, is that, you know, we can put out concepts into the world and if they can be useful for us understanding an issue a little bit better, yeah, that's the goal. So, um yeah, I really appreciate that. And I think it's helpful to be able to trace that, um, how people sort of move forward and they make connections, right? Because um, that's, again, another thing I've just been frustrated sometimes with, both as a reader um, and as a teacher. You know, <clears throat> pardon. we talk about these communities as if they're living in isolation in a way that is just not accurate, right? Um, so if we're... We're gonna, you know, hold ourselves up as the experts. The least we can do is try to be a little bit more um, descriptive. So, um, you know, I think uh, with Cav and Mom, it was really interesting to sort of go back into their history. You know, when I was working with them, you know, they had already become um, these very complex groups, right, with these different projects they had to learn about and understand. Um, but I think when you look back at the history and that it's this sort of small coming together of people on a specific issue, right? With CAB, it was anti-Asian violence. Um, and with Mothers on the Move, it was educational inequities. Um, you see sort of how that, that drive to fix that initial issue, right? And to come together um, and to work. The folks that have that kind of interest they start seeing and identifying these bigger connections, right? And they 
are willing to, and I, I think it's humility, right? To understand that even if this one issue is sort of my, my passion, I'm really, a, you know, an education person or I'm a very like racial justice person, they're able to start saying like, well, gender issues matter too, or pollution is a really big problem. And if I care about kids' education, I care about their safety, um, getting to school and their ability to grow up, right? When kids are having so many struggles with asthma in the South Bronx, that, that's a problem, right? And it's a problem that impacts their access to education, right? Um, and for CAV, you know, you talk about anti-Asian violence and, you know, in the 80s, you know, incidents like the the beating death of Vincent Chin, you know, this was white men on a night out, um, but they soon saw, right, that police brutality was an issue for their community, right? And I think that's something I always hope that people can remember is that when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we can talk about anti-Black racism and we can also recognize the other forms of racism that are um, occurring, right? That Latinx folks, Asian American folks, Indigenous folks, they also know what it is like to be killed and beaten and harassed by the police too, right? That it's, it's, you know, it's a broad issue, um, unfortunately. So, um, you know, I think CAB was able to sort of make that move, but then they recognized, you know, that gender-based violence was a, an issue in the community too. Um, you know, the Roots of the Women Workers Project, trying to organize um, Asian sex workers, I think really speaks to that knowledge, right? That if we care about this issue of anti-Asian violence, we care about it in all its manifestations. Um, and so I always, I've always really respected that about them, you know, the CAV folks broadened that sort of lens and that they recognize that poverty, right? And if we want to talk about structural violence, poverty causes so many different kinds of harm, right? So, you know, I really, I think with both groups, um, you see this way that they are able to develop out of their concern and out of their practice and analysis of all the sort of different issues that matter for their community. And they can't take on all of them, but they develop projects and they try to really, you know, make a dent um, in some of the, the most challenging things that people are facing. Mm. Yeah, um, that's really fascinating. And I think, as you said, um, both organizations sort of offer this platform for women and other uh, activists to get together and form analysis about the injustices that they face and then develop actions, which um, I think would be a good segue for us to maybe talk a little bit about the specific chapters and the stories that you tell. Um, so uh, I, in chapter one, you explore the representations of the South Bronx and Chinatown in Manhattan that both act both organizations had to really confront um, in the past decades. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, your decision to focus on New York City. I mean, it's obvious because two groups do the work in New York City, but what are some of the um, inequalities and structural violence and other issues that are specific to New York and its history and how you maybe try to tie that with 
transnational histories and you know at different levels inequalities across the globe as well yeah so yes mm-hmm. um and i'll give props again to to my editor lynn itagaki she um you know she's a very you know thoughtful reader and her work i really um respect in its sort of cross-racial analysis um and, you know as we were working for on my book she was like you know i think you really need to do this chapter um because you need to sort of set the the context right um so you know i think with new york um you know obviously my focus on new york was partially just that i was you know i was seduced by its complexity right you know i think you know, I, 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 it's, I know I'm repeating myself, but I, I, coming from Chicago, it was just really exciting. Um, it was really exciting to have all of these different kinds of folks in community together. Um, you know, and, and I think like an easy example is, you know, I, I, my family lives in Hyde Park on the South side. Um, if you want to get good Indian food, that's affordable. You have to go basically to the the end border of the north part of Chicago to like Devon Avenue, right? To get good, you know, Mexican food, you have to go to specific Mexican neighborhoods like Pilsen or La Vita, right? Like you're not going to get that in Hyde Park because there's no expectation of that, right? Um, so yes, and I know I, I really like food. So obviously that's my but in Chicago, you know, in New York, you can get great food everywhere, right? Mexican food's not so great, but you know, the other food is great. So um, I just appreciate that, um, or that it's not as far, that the transportation's better. You know, New York just has a lot more mixing, for lack of a better word, right? That I could hop on the train from the South Bronx and go down to Chinatown, right? That that was not a big deal. So. Um, you know, for me, I think this context, I think just also the longer history and that it, New York has such a, a big presence in sort of how we imagine the United States, right? That, you know, when you talk about immigration, a lot of people, we do think about New York, right? It's sort of been seen as that sort of hub, that arrival point, um, and I think it begs a lot of questions about sort of like, what does that look like now? And how did that story get worked, right? So, you know, my mom's family are Ashkenazi Jews from the from her Russian empire. Like they came through Ellis Island. Um, you know, my grandma was born in the Bronx, but then they, they went West. They went to LA. So, um, but we, that's the common story, right? White people, come to New York, do, do, do. Um, and we don't, and we don't think about sort of what would it mean to be Puerto Rican to arrive in New York in the seventies, right? Or was it mean to come from China in the eighties or to be a Cambodian refugee, right? Um, these are different stories and we act like New York was a welcoming place. Why do we not want to imagine it as a welcoming place or why do we not expect it? to be a welcoming place now, right? Because I think at least in the Jewish American narrative, right, at least for Ashkenazis, right, New York was supposed to be a place of opportunity. And maybe it was challenging, but um, 
you know, the hostility, you know, I think that we see now against Asian Americans, you know, it's a, feels a little different. You know, I think that the stories I tell in this piece, right, that you have, you know, news reporters from Fox wandering around Chinatown and insulting people and treating them like they have no right to be there. You know, and I don't want to downplay the experiences of my, you know, forebearers, but I'm not getting targeted in that way, right? If I'm on Delancey Street or if I was in the Upper West Side, people aren't going to be harassing me, right, um, because of my heritage. So I just think there's this this question we have to ask about, like, why is anti-Asian racism so just impossible to get away from and the this particularly this idea of foreignness that is so dangerous for people you know um why does that why is that always there um and i feel like that's a very um that stereotype and assumption it's it's a very big problem to have to address as activists right so that seemed like a really important element to focus on um and I think it partially explains why there's so much erasure around um, the challenges that um, different Asian communities experience in the United States, right? It's just not being taken seriously um, in the mainstream. And I think with, you know, the South Bronx, again, the South Bronx, I feel like um, in some ways resonates with me in terms of Chicago, right? Like I think people, the way they talk about the South side of Chicago, this is how they talk about the South Bronx, right? It's hyper-racialized. Um, it's seen as because of poverty, that's impossibly dangerous. Um, and that's it, right? Like I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's actually much more that people think about that. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I can say firsthand, you know, I know that there are um, safety issues in lots of neighborhoods um, but, you know, no one gave me a problem in the South Bronx when I was always, whenever I was there, um, you know, and again, that's, I think when I'm talking to academics, they assume dumb things about, um, these communities, um, you know, but, and, and I, I felt, you know, felt okay for me. Right. And I think that's partially my white privilege. That's also partially that the level of criminality that people assume is just not realistic, right? Like people are not running around mugging each other day and night. Like there's just weird, weird assumptions. Um, and I think that's the same thing, you know, that I would say about Chicago that people assume um, that the violence is constant and the violence is a huge problem for communities, but it is something that's a lot more complicated than, these neighborhoods are not safe. You can't go into them. They're hopeless, right? I think there's a way that the South Bronx is talked about in a way as if it is just a hopeless place. And that's not true. Um, it's not true about the people in mom. Um, it's definitely not true about the, the awesome bakery that I used to go to down the street, right? Like, you know, there's very, there's great things. There are pupusas, right, around the corner, Again, right, like the food, there was some good food. Um, so I just feel like 
with that, I had to trace like, how did the South Bronx become this thing, right? This sort of object. Um, because again, right, like it used to be a, a fairly, you know, ethnic, you know, white ethnic neighborhood, right? I when I take the train, I'd see, you know, a former synagogue on the way in on the six. Um, and I think it was very important to be clear about sort of the moment that the South Bronx particularly gets seen as a problem, right? When people start talking about the Bronx is burning, um, it's a moment where landlords, right, property owners are disinvesting, right? That this is not the population they want to rent to. They see their property being devalued and they want out. Right. And to me, that is not about people's choices. You know, I think a lot of the time people will talk about folks in public housing or people in low income housing and sort of say like, oh, well, they're slobs or blah, blah, blah. They don't care to take care of their homes. I will say, you know, teaching at a private college, um, students often do not show respect for their living quarters. Right. They're not thoughtful about garbage or destruction of property. Um, you know, it's, it's amazing that only some people, when they're not given the resources for things to be properly cleaned up or taken care of, they're blamed for those conditions, right? Whereas affluent white people being slobs, right? Where there's, that's just, that should be cleaned up quickly and we should never talk about it or ask questions about their culture. Um, we would never make gross generalizations, right? So, um, you know, I think when I'm looking at the South Bronx and I looked at that history, you've got that sort of representation that circulates across the country, um, that it's just, it's on fire. There's, it's nothing's left, right? It's as if these folks don't exist um, or if they do exist, we can't imagine how they live. Um, and, and it's really important, I think, to highlight that just because that makes it so much harder to fight for resources, right? When people can't imagine your community wanted sort of existence or that could have a possible existence that's more positive or, or that you actually like your home, right? I think in some ways, you know, to pull back to, you know, you're talking about sort of the transnational, you know, when we talk about migration, people don't really under, seem to understand that people migrate for lots of reasons, it doesn't mean that they didn't love their home or that that's not a very challenging and sad thing. Right. Um, so I just feel like there's a lack of empathy perhaps. Um, and again, back to the queer mother work thing, right? Like if you take a second to think about, you know, you're a person with a kid in this neighborhood, think about the things you'd want, right? You'd want good schools. You'd want safety. Right. And that's both clean streets and the police to not be a threat to your child. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I think one of the things that you did really well is um, to emphasize when we are talking about these neighborhoods, whose perspectives we are really um, looking through things and how mainstream, despite mainstream portrayals, um, these mothers and neighbors um, had assets, like good knowledge, and sometimes even better kind of analyses of 
what's going on than, you know, a lot of the mainstream reports and media and even city officials. Um, and one thing that really stuck out for me was how um, women of color were really kind of taking on central positions in leadership um, for both groups. And I think you talk um, a, a lot about how that came about and the strategies that these women of color used in chapter two and three. So perhaps we can pivot a little bit to that and um, maybe for you to talk a little bit about what were some of the similar, interesting similarities and differences you saw in both the leadership and also kind of the social change tactics that have and mom used. Yeah. I mean, I think one big takeaway for me um, was that uh, the people who became leaders, right. A lot of the time they were getting support and encouragement, right. And that these organizations became a space where they felt like they could be who they were um, and that they had power. Right. I think that, um, you know, I'm thinking about someone like Nova Strachan and she and I, um, you know, I think we we're like, we we're basically the same age. Um, and so, you know, I met her, I think she was about right 25 or so. And it was really great to have this conversation with her and to sort of learn and see how, um, you know, she'd grown up in the South Bronx. She'd um, grown up in public housing. It was clear that she didn't get a message um you know, in school, for example, that um, she could have a sort of really vibrant future. Um, and, you know, as a housing organizer, she was getting a lot of support and having new opportunities to connect with people, right? Um, so she was able to go to um, South America and meet activists. She was, she performed in um, the, the Pins and Needles, um, yeah, theater performance, right? She sang. It was awesome. Um, but, you know, the point was that she was part of a group that recognized that that was something that mattered, right? That Nova being part of that performance, working with people from Fury, the group in the in Brooklyn that was also working on housing issues, that it made sense, right? It was worthwhile. And I think that that kind of building up of a person and sort of getting to know that you can do this and that in turn, you can encourage people to um, sort of explore what they already know. Right. I think part of it is, you know, and I'm thinking particularly around the stuff around public housing. Some of it is that people aren't being given accurate information or they're not being given support to engage. Um, but what they do know is really frustrating, right? You do know that your repairs are not happening right? You do know that they're not picking up the garbage, right? So what are you supposed to think about that? Um, you know, I think it takes um, a lot of engagement to think that you can change that and that together people can improve their conditions because it's really hard if you've had to tolerate that for years. Right? You might know it's wrong, but you don't feel like you can do anything about it yourself. And I think you know, lots of people, including myself, like, I think we all can think about something where we know something's wrong, doesn't sit right with us, but are you really going to step up and try to change that? Do we even know how to start? Right. Um, and I think that's where these kinds of organizations 
and leadership development comes in, it's sort of giving people permission on some level to act, but it's also helping them sort of think about what are strategies that tend to work, right? Um, and for me, I think it was really powerful um, to get us in on some of the workshops as well as the protests, right, and that kind of stuff, just to sort of think about, like, how do you do that, right? Um, and political education um, is a really important tool that both groups use, right, where you sort of take apart the problem, you think about sort of what are the roots of this issue, what are the roots of the movements that we're part of, so that we know our history, right? Um, and it is kind of funny to talk about that as a professor, but I think that's, you know, it's a fine line, right? When I'm doing my job, um, I try to be clear that my students can believe whatever they want and have a, whatever political perspective they want, but they will sort of learn the content, right? Um, and I see what's different about political education is we are talking about values and we're going to go deep on that. And we are making some kind of commitment um, to social change that is a lot more overt than I think is necessarily appropriate in like a formal educational setting. Right. Um, I used to joke in my intro course, right. Like I'm not trying to make a feminist militia, right. Like it'd be a really different class, right. Like you do really different exercises. We're just learning like some feminist history, we're learning about some identities and how theory works, right? Whatever. Um, so I feel like with both groups, um, you know, they would do like a power analysis and they'd really start thinking about like, who are the players in this issue? Where are we on this issue? Where do we want to go? How are we going to get there? Right. So that the things we talk about, I think a lot when it comes to activism about like a very public protest they're very clear about how does that fit into all the other kinds of efforts you're making. Right. And that that's one moment on a, in your path to making change. Right. So that protest is when some other stuff hasn't worked, right. Where you're not getting the responses you need and you're definitely following up on that protest and you're going to make it have some, you know, impact. Um, so particularly with um, mom and the issues around um, the New York organic fertilizer um, corporation, what I really appreciated was that when we started doing protests and when they would do like toxic tours near the plant, it was to help people really understand that they weren't just complaining or whining, right? That this was unbearable, right? The kind of smells that came out of that plant that no one ever, you know, when I would participate with them, you know, no one ever came outside from the organization, right? You'd be outside their gates. They didn't come out to talk to us, right? Um, so you had to engage media. You had to engage politicians because Mothers on the Moves members were not getting responded to, right? And at that point, you have no choice but to sort of you know, find the people who have access to certain kinds of formal power, right? Um, and eventually that worked, right? They shut it down. And I think they did that for years, right? I think that's something, too, that's really important. Like, this is a kind of leadership and organizing that is really, it is super long-term, and it's about not giving up. And I guess that goes back to queer mother work, too, right? Like, if you really have that community your commitment, right? If it's that level of sincerity, you don't give up, right? 
because um, you wouldn't give up on your family, right? Like, I think that's um, the sort of values that I saw with these kinds of groups. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting that you talk about kind of the multiple variety of approaches that uh, both groups used, right? And they kind of have to experiment and test things out. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, because I think it's, you know, life is unpredictable. I mean, <laughs> as we know, we're doing this interview in a pandemic, <laughs> right? Like, didn't expect that. Surprise. Um, but I also didn't expect that this year was going to be the year that people – recognize that Black Lives Matter in a way that, you know, five years ago, um, a lot of people didn't, right? The football team from Washington, you know, that is now changing its name, right? It's been told repeatedly, that's a problem. This year, that finally stuck, right? I think it's sort of, I think maybe that's the point, right? Like, what is going to stick? You can't necessarily predict, right? It, it takes... Um, a bunch of things coming together. And so, you know, I think that's really, you know, I think it just depends on how you look at that, right? Like on one hand, you're like, oh, unpredictability, right? Like that's not, <laughs> that's not fun. But it also means that there's always hope, right? Even in the most frustrating of times. Um, and I will say, you know, like I remember going to an anti-police brutality protest actually before I went to college in Chicago downtown, right, in like 1998, you know, and that issue in Chicago, right, like, uh, you know, it's endless. And anytime we have moments like this, it does give me hope that we can see some actual change, right? Even as we see that mayor not responding in a way that people are okay with, right? But it's not something that can be ignored. Um, and I think that's the only way you can, you know, try to address that issue, right? Um, so I think it's like having as many shots as possible, right? My partner's from New Jersey. She's always like, you got to, right? She was like, you got to buy a ticket to, to win the lotto, right? You got to be in it to win it. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, as, as problematic that is that it is, I'm like, yeah, you do have to be in it to win it. Yeah. Right? The stories of Cab and Mom would also... I mean, pretty hopeful in the sense that look at kind of the number of women and organizers and activists that you um, discuss who kind of were really part of the earlier kind of founding eras and became really transformed by their involvement and have become, you know, leaders in the group. And, you know, they've now expanded to multiple issues and have, you know, achieved, you know, really big impact. So it's exhausting work, but I think it's, you know, definitely positive, um, impactful work. Yeah. And I think what's nice about both groups too, is it doesn't always have to be linear, right? So that, mm -hmm. um, you might be someone who's part of the group for a little while and then you tap out or, um, you know, there, you go on to your own thing, right? Like you talked about like multiple projects, you know, some of these projects spin off, um, some people go on to create their own kinds of groups. Um, and I, I think that's, in some, it's a good thing. And, um, you know, and some people become, you know, famous, right? Like, I think there's just people have different trajectories. Some people go back to their old work, right? And I think, um, you know, for some of them, that's okay. Um, and some people get super frustrated, right? Like, there's a lot of different possibilities. But I think that 
when you get to be part of a group like CAV or MOM, um, there's more possibilities that open up, right? And, you know, I think part of it too is just about having an affirming space, right? And I, you know, that might be cheesy, but I think to be in spaces where, particularly as women of color, you are the majority, that you are the leaders, right? You see people like you running the show, right? And it's not, and I, I hate to say this, right, but it's not a dude who's like running the meeting and calling the shots and being paternalistic, right? It's a space where if the men are going to be there, they usually, you know, are showing some respect and there's sort of management of sort of those challenges. And I think that in and of itself is different, right? You know, I think about other spaces that people gather and, you know, my senses were still in a, a moment where most religious spaces, it's hard to find places where women are truly like the leaders who are the ones who get to talk, right? Not just behind the scenes, but actually, you know, the pastor, right? Where they're um, seen as that sort of authority, right? Um, so I think to be in a space where there's leadership, but it's also more inclusive, right? And it's sort of a different style, Um I think it's great. And to know that you can be that person, right? That you, you know, if you become an organizer, right, that you're going to bring people together and you're going to help them explore this issue and act, right? I think that's a really, um, I do think that's a special experience to be able to have, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, your uh, comments just now reminded me of a question that I wanted to ask a little bit earlier when you talked about sort of the, um, I guess, tensions and exhaustions and conflicts Mm -hmm. within the organizations. Um, I mean, it's really great that both organizations were able to build literal bridges between communities that once were thought to be, you know, fragmented and isolated. Um, But when they expand to issues from, you know, maybe police brutality to sex workers to um, undocumented workers or to environmental justice and needed to bring in different groups. Um, what were some of the challenges that they faced and how did they kind of try to resolve these tensions? If anything maybe stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, I think actually just thinking back to sort of moments with both groups, the tensions that I would see were the kinds of tensions that were, weren't actually tied to those kinds of topics, right, or projects. It wasn't about the expansion. I think it was about usually the kinds of differences um, that we ignore, right? So um, if you're talking about Asian or Asian American folks, right, like you're not, do you also want to talk about educational attainment? Do you want to talk about, migration experience? Um, Do you want to talk about what region or, you know, I would say ethnicity they actually have, right? Like there's a lot going on there that we erase when we say Asian, right? Um, And I would say the same thing with mom, right? You know, so you're a South Bronx resident. Um, It doesn't mean that you share a lot of, um, sort of cultural norms, I would say, right? So if you're 
maybe a lighter skinned person who grew up in Puerto Rico, um, you're not someone who grew up with the same norms as maybe someone who is a lifelong resident of the South Bronx, right? Who might be African-American, right? The kinds of, you know, bias or issues that you bring to the table are going to be different. Um, And I think it's part of what I found with both groups is usually they were able to manage those differences and not have it become destructive. Right. And I will say as an academic, right. Like we're very, I think scholars tend to be very unkind with each other. Right. Um, And we often will take, you know, and I'm sure I've done this too. Right. Like I think we sometimes will take the littlest thing and write someone off. Right. Um, So at least with these groups, what I tended to see was people try not to make those problems a big deal. Right. Um, And maybe those things should have been dealt with better. Um, But also, like I said, that was not my project. And I don't think I have a right to be the judge on that. Um, I think I struggled with those things as a person. Um, But I would have struggled with them in any situation. Like I'm a hypersensitive person, right? Um, Anyone who knows me knows that that's (laughs) just the way I am, right? Like I don't think I'm actually cut out for ethnographic work. That's kind of what I learned from this project is like, I'm, you know, very emotional and permeable in a way that, that, you know, it's hard for me. Um, So I I think when it came to the actual like projects, like the environmental justice work, I think there's definitely challenges when you're working with groups who have different political stances with you or sort of, you know, on an issue, there's some shifts. Um, But I think both groups were pretty, I found them to be pretty um, pragmatic and smart about you come together on the specific problem you're trying to address. Right. And that's great. Right. It's, and you're not going to spend a lot of energy tearing each other apart um, in other situations, unless it comes to, you know, where there becomes a real conflict. Right. Um, I would say in the South Bronx, definitely um, there are challenges about what people think of, should be the future of development in the area and sort of what are appropriate solutions. And I think that that is a challenge, but it, that makes sense that that would be, it's high stakes. Right. Um, so I guess that's why I would say I noticed mostly. Um, but to me, it would very much, you know, I, I just want to emphasize, I thought at the end of the day, um, both groups did a lot of, a lot of solid work and, you know, I, I think that this is part of about what it means to be a human, to be socialized in the world we live in, right? Like we, we all make mistakes and I think we all have a lot of bias. So of course that manifested itself. It just, to me, as that was not my project, you know, that, that wasn't the, the key element to focus on. I know it was important to acknowledge, obviously, um, because I'm not interested in like being like everyone's a saint, blah, blah, blah. And you have to be a saint to be an activist. That's not helpful. Um, but I'm not also interested in being like, let me um, treat folks in a way that I wouldn't want to be treated myself or I wouldn't want my family to be treated, you know? Yeah. But what I thought was really powerful about a queer mother work approach was that, yes, there were differences within these, you know, 
communities that were you know, but the boundaries of which were contested, um, people focus on the social justice issues, the bigger picture and the kind of the collective future that they wanted to see um, and kind of recognize that there could, were solidarities that they could build over differences. Um, and maybe we can now turn to chapter four, where we see this really at work um, with housing. Um, and what I found fascinating about your discussion there was you started off talking about how um, the housing history needs to be gendered and how it disproportionately, you know, involved women who were active in tenants' rights movements. And, um, you know, in the South Bronx in particular, there were a lot of women, single women-led households. Um, and I just wondered why you decided to start off with that and what, what you think was really useful about a gendered lens in this story. Yeah, I mean, I think what I was trying to think through was um, that there is sort of a nice historiography of women and tenants' rights movements, particularly in New York, right? So that we know this that housing is an issue that women have taken up, right? Since, since the 1800s, right? So since you know, like white ethnic folks were, were fighting on this issue. Um, and I think we can understand that women are held responsible for their households, right? There is just, um, there's still this dominant expectation, right? When it comes to something like children's safety, children's health, right? Who's held responsible for that, right? Women are, um, so um, what I wanted to do is really think through the statistics, right? So the demographics of the South Bronx are what they are. And yeah, there's a lot of um, single mother-led households. And I wanted to think about how do we um, understand that issue and why it matters. Um, and I've written a follow-up article about public housing in New York, um, sort of doing a deeper dive into those questions around um demographics, um, because I am really troubled by the fact that on one hand, women are really held responsible for this issue. And it's an issue that is really, um, I don't know, it's housing is a huge problem in this country, I guess, right? Like that we're seeing, you know, how unaffordable housing is, right? that the costs keep on increasing, that rents keep on increasing, that the divestment in public housing, you know, that started happening most overtly, right, in the 70s and 80s just doesn't stop, right? Um, so to me, I think it's a, I guess as a feminist scholar, it's really important to think about what does it mean when to me something that should be right? Like I do believe it's a human right, right? The right to housing, to feel safe um, in your home. Right? I think that's really important um, when that is constantly threatened and has to be defended. Right. Um, and it's interesting, right? With CAV, you know, when they were working with people in single resident occupancy um, buildings, right? A lot of those folks, some of them are ma migrant men, right? From China, and they're, you know, being really put at risk, too. And I think that's a gender issue also, right? I think we look at the history of the exploitation and feminization of um, Asian migrant men in this country. Um, and there's something 
particularly troubling about that. Um, but that this is an issue that both communities were struggling with. Um, to me, it felt like that really needed to be talked through, particularly because we do, I think, tend to talk about housing issues, um, n- you know, not together, right? So people are happy to talk about public housing, but then they don't talk about people who are living, you know, in privately owned and managed properties. And um, I think it's really important to be able to talk about both. Um, and, you know, I'll, you know, as a grad student living in, in New York, yeah, like I got to see, right, some of those issues with housing. Um, even when my family, when we first moved to Chicago, we had a slumlord. Um, and, you know, just the, the real challenges there. I think around if you don't have the kind of wealth to own your own home, the kinds of abuses and exploitation you experience, I think there's just something about that that we have to address. Um, And it's very much connected to the feminization of poverty and to people's ability to care for their families. Right. So, um, you know, it's long winded, but to definitely, right. Like I think there's a big problem if we're living in a world where, you know, single women are trying to raise their kids. And I think that that is totally a valid family formation. Um, Why are we in a situation where that is so hard just to do the basics, right? To be able to find decent housing, decent food, decent education, right? And decent jobs, right? I, you know, decent healthcare, Right. Like, I think there's there's these sort of things that people who have class privilege take for granted. Um, And, you know, these are critical problems. Um, And I don't I I guess I don't appreciate back to the sort of mainstream narratives that folks in that situation are getting blamed. Right. That single mothers are demonized when they're not getting any reasonable access or supports. You know, I'm like, that's not about family formation. That's about society and I would say, you know, capitalism. And unfortunately, right, like as we see in this book, right, it's about racism. Yeah. And you also pointed out how housing connected both organizations, you know, to other issues that they worked on as well, right? Recreational space, police brutality, and, you know, ability to have decent wage jobs. Um, So, and as someone who grew up in the Lower East Side and, you know, had to struggle with housing all my life as well, I definitely kind of attest to your experiences and why the work that mom and Cap are doing are so important. Um, Maybe for our last question, um, if we could take a step back and discuss a little bit about sort of the uh, interventions that you hope to make in uh, different fields. I see this book as you know making really big interventions in history of social movements, gender and women's history, ethnic studies, and urban history because of you know the focus on cross-cutting coalition building in histories and centering the stories of uh, communities of color. I wondered if you had. Um, what you had initially hoped for the project to 
to get out of the project and um, where you hope to see these fields going because of the kind of interdisciplinary approach that your book kind of um, highlights. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you know, you recognize and I'm glad that sort of the, the bottom line for me was that I really think we need to connect the dots between communities, right? I think um, when I look at what activists do, that seems to be sort of a, a default, right? If you're trying to make change happen, you you look around and you find the people who can be in coalition with you, right? Um, so to me, it is partially just about having better scholarship in the sense of if you're going to talk about housing issues in New York, I think it's a little bit more helpful to think about that across communities, right? So that readers will get a bigger sense of that picture um, and know that it's not just about Harlem or it's not just about Chinatown or it's not just about the South Bronx, right? That those experiences are connected and people doing this work understand that, right? Um, So um, part of it, you know, then is just about, you know, I just... I think I go back to my undergrad experience and what I wanted and I still, I think we're doing better and I see more and more scholarship coming out. And so I'm very appreciative of it, but you know, there's a lot of work you have to do as a teacher even to help students connect those dots because so often people are getting trained and being, you know, supported to be in conversation where either vis-a-vis methodology or, area of expertise, they don't, they're not as explicit about the connections between these things as I'd like them to be, right? So that to talk about LGBT issues and really highlight questions of race and ethnicity, right? That still seems on some level to be more specialized. Um, That doesn't work for me, right? When I'm teaching my class on queer theory and activism, Um, when I'm teaching around you know, I'm just thinking about the classes I'm teaching this fall, right? My other classes on sex work and um, it's still, you know, the stuff that actually addresses gender and race together, right? Tends to be community specific, right? So that's troubling. When I have my students, you know, when we've done research that's a little bit more targeted, you know, there's certain um, groups of people that's very hard to find out much about because people are still not writing. Right. Um, so part of it is I just want to have better things to teach my students, <laughs> but right. I mean, I just, right. Like my students are learning that like, Oh shit, like racial justice really matters. And I'm like, it does. And if it does, then shouldn't we be having that always be central in our courses? Right. We, it does need to be central. And so that means that the scholarship needs to be good. It needs to not just assume whiteness. It also needs to not assume that the reader is white, right? And that's actually, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we can take that for granted. Um, So, you know, I think those are just sort of challenges around academia. Um, But yeah, I think, you know, this is part of it too, is I think just for me, um, you know, being trained only interdisciplinarily. I sort of bounced around different fields. Um, and I think there's, uh, 
things about that that are really challenging, right? Like you don't get when job ads are out there and it's just sociologists or historians, right? You can't apply. Um, that also means you sort of have to fight to get recognized. And I think people are being better about that now. But um, it just means that we need to also validate training that uses different kinds of approaches to ask questions and that there's also an acceptance of, I guess, incompleteness. And I don't know if that really is a helpful thing to bring up. But, you know, I hope that my book is communicating that these are the lessons that I found from doing this research with these two groups. These are the things that I highlighted, but other people would find different stories to tell. Right. Um, And that I think there's a a good conversation to be had by looking at these two groups together. Um, So I just, I I think there's part of me that's also just, I don't, I want to be at a place where we're not trying to, provide definitive answers on questions. Um, And we recognize that in the day that's sort of an okay place to be as, as scholars, right? That to me, if you wanted a definitive history of CAV, I would like that to be written by its members. Right. I just think that's different. Um, And I'm not going to pretend that I'm the person who could do something like that. So, um, I guess in terms of fields, those questions about like the impact I'd like to have the book, the book to have on, on different fields. One, you know, I don't have enough ego to be like, oh, I think it'll have much impact. <laughs> I would like it to, of course, though, right? Like I care. I mean, I think particularly, I think around women's history, that's sort of the women's and gender history. That's a field I've been most engaged with, along with, um, you know, like NWSA. Um, I would, yeah. I, I, I know I'm repeating myself, but cross-racial analysis. Like I want the people who are experts who know so much around, you know, Latinx issues or LGBT issues or, you know, the black Atlantic. Um, I want them to be in conversation. I want to be going to conferences where, the panel has sort of that range of folks and they're really thinking about what the common lessons are and also what is, what are the things that are different and we need to understand why. Right. Um, You know, part of me felt that things had changed on that, but I'm trying to think about this, the places I've been and it's, we're not, we're not there. Right. Like I still, I can go to a panel that's super awesome about the history of enslaved women, right. In the United States or the Caribbean, that's great, but it's not, then I'm going to, you know, I could go to a panel that's looking at um, reproductive justice questions. Right. And I don't even know that there'd be overlap between those two. Um, But then if I'm going to do something that's sort of looking at, you know, Asian activists and anti-militarism, right? That's not going to get connected back to the shared histories of colonization or something, right? Like, you know what I mean? I just, it's an exceptional scholar. I think, you know, um, Lynn obviously does this work. Um, and Judy Wu does this work, right? Like there are people who are doing cross-racial analysis. Um, 
but we need so much more. And I think we need to reward that, right. As scholars. And I think right now, um, I think it's part of, part of just how we are trained and socialized. I think it's much easier to be comfortable in a space where you all share an area of expertise or maybe a, a, a social identity. Um, I think it feels safer. Um, and I, and I think that these are, and I don't want to downplay that. I think these are spaces that people have had to fight to have in the first place. Right. Right. Like that to, to be able to do, you know, particularly thinking about like enslaved black women's history. I know that folks have had to fight for that and are still fighting for that to be understood as legitimate in some ways within the larger field of history, which, you know, obviously someone like me, like, I don't even understand, like, I can't understand that on some level. Like it's unbearable. Um, so, you know, I'm, I guess what I'm saying is like, I want to see something that's so much to ask from people when they're already trying so hard to just do the work that they're doing. Right. Um, but again, I guess, right. Like that's my privilege, right. So I'm a, a white person who got to pursue a PhD where they let me do whatever I wanted, which was super nice. Um, and I took a lot of risks and, you know, I'm really happy that I had that opportunity. I just, I guess that's what I'm, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like I wish and I want for us uh, more opportunities for people to be true to the work they do and to be in conversation across their differences in ways that would be really productive. And I think we're still not quite there. So, wow. Yeah. That's a lot to really take in. And, but I think, um, yeah, hopefully we'll be there one day where a lot of us will be able to cross our differences and disciplines and, you know, subject matters and have productive conversations. Um, I guess we'll end there for today. Thank you so much, Ari. Um, it was really a pressure to speak with you and I found it illuminating to talk. Um, so, Thank you, Ari. Thank you so much, Hangdei. I really appreciate um, getting to spend this time with you. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Ariella Rochamau, the author of Pushing Back Women of Color-Led Grassroots Activism in New York City, published in 2020 by the University of Georgia Press. My name is Hongding Gao, and this is New Books in New York City History, a podcast channel presented to you by the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thank you for listening. <laughs>